system was made. From all these rip-offs and all these kidnaps and all these murders and all these jailings, the beat goes on. And it goes on strong. I know that. I said it before I went to jail. I'm back now and I may be going again. But if I do go, if you don't say anything else, then the last thing I heard him say was that you can jail a revolutionary, but you can't jail a the state's attorney's office defending the pre-dawn shootout alleges that Panther Party members are stockpiling weapons all across the country. The Panthers charge that all of this is part of a planned extermination of their leadership. Bill Plant, CBS News, Chicago. We're going back up to the mountaintop. We're going to say that I am... Welcome, everyone. Welcome to another podcast, another episode of the Act Protect Engage podcast. I'm your host, the handsome and intelligent Mr. Chase H. I hope you guys are having a great Monday so far. I hope you haven't caught a case of the Monday blues. If you have, I hope this podcast episode helps you get out of your funk and really get after it. And start enjoying the day again. Alright, so today's episode is about one of my idols, one of my inspirations, Mr. Fred Hampton, the founder of the Chicago area Black Panther Party chapter. He was brutally assassinated by police, and we're going to talk about it today. We're going to start off talking about his upbringing, his childhood, some of his early accomplishments, and then in part two, we're going to really get into the nitty-gritty. I hope you enjoy. Ape. Chase, once again, I'm going to keep repeating it so you don't forget my name. Real quick, all right? Real quick, we're going to do some housekeeping, okay? We do this every freaking episode. Turn on your post notification button because if you do and you're sitting around reading a book, I hope, and you hear a bing, you look down on your smartphone, you see that little banner on the top of the screen, you might see a notification that says a.p.e. Academy. That's how you know there's a new podcast episode streaming right now. Also, if you have a few minutes, please follow us. You can review us. Chase is awesome. Or you can say, you know what? We're just going to give him a five-star rating. However, be honest because I look at the reviews and I use the feedback to help me, you know, make some adjustments and do some things better. Okay, guys? Thank you to all of our listeners, both domestically and internationally we do this for you guys i'm just trying to spread some knowledge of stuff that i think is pretty cool i'm a history buff i'm a history nerd i want us to learn from the past so we can help shape our future and stop making the same stupid mistakes thank you 
very much. Rant over. That's all I got. All right, guys, I promise. So today we're talking about Fred Hampton. We have a two-part podcast series that we're going to do on Fred. The entire series is called The Assassination of a Panther, The Murder of Fred Hampton. All right, so this is part one. We have two sources. Really, we have, well, we have three sources. We have Black Against Empire, The History and Politics of the Black Panther Party by Waldo E. Martin and Joshua Bloom. We have Britannica.com, Encyclopedia.com, and we have the University of Virginia. All right, so we have a few. Actually, we have more than two. We have three, three or four good sources here today, all right? We also have a few actually modern-day, like, media, popular media sources as well. If you guys ever heard of the movie Judas and the Black Messiah, maybe, maybe not, look it up. It's on HBO Max. It's streaming on HBO Max. The actor in it won Best Supporting Actor. He's also in uh, the movie Get Out. I can't remember his name, but he's a great young African-American actor. He won an Oscar for that role. The movie displays the struggle, the triumph, the ultimate betrayal of Mr. Fred Hampton. All right, so it's a great movie, critically acclaimed. It also has a dope soundtrack, so it's worth looking into, all right? Okay, so first things first. Fred Hampton was born to lead, all right? Leaders are born. They're not made, they're born. Fred Hampton was a born leader, a naturally charismatic personality. He wasn't flashy. He didn't wear expensive jewelry or clothes, but he had a strong, bold aura, a commanding presence. Mr. Waldo Martin writes, quote, people trusted him. He had been raised in a loving and close-knit family and attended church and Bible study throughout his childhood. He was a top athlete in high school and an A student. He never used drugs or drank. Even as a young man, when he spoke, the words flowed sharp and lyrical in the best of the black church tradition. Fred was fearless. He was also focused. When he spoke, people listened. He was born on August 30th, 1948, Frederick Allen Hampton, the son of Francis in Iberia Hampton. Fred was actually the youngest of three children, and he was a member of a strong working class family from Louisiana. All right? It's interesting learning about his life because, like, I did a, I did a lot of research on his life. Um, I, I, you know, there's a lot. He did a lot as a kid, so I really had to pick and choose what I highlighted. He was a very, very active youth as far as, like, Early on, he was an activist, even in middle school and high, all the way up through high school. Hampton grew up in the Chicago suburb of Maywood, Illinois. Among his acquaintances was Emmett Till. I really hope you guys have heard of Emmett Till. He was a black child who Iberia had babysat regularly. So his, his mom babysat young Emmett Till. In 1955, Till was a teenager visiting relatives in Mississippi when he was accused of whistling at a white woman. He was brutally beaten to death, mutilated and then dumped into a river like a piece of garbage by local white vigilantes. 
And if you remember, his mother, Emmett's mother, he she wanted the world to see what these men had did to her son. He was like 14 years old. He was a kid. He was a child. She had an open casket. He had been in the river for a few days, so he was mutilated. His face was swollen. He had part of his, you know, face missing. And she wanted the world to see it. She had an open casket funeral to show the world what hate, what hatred, what animals can do to people when you don't respect human life, right? Especially the lives of black children, all right? So the Hamptons' family connection with Emmett, along with their experiences of racial inequality within their own suburban community, made Fred keenly aware of racial justice early on. He knew from an early age what he wanted to do. While attending high school in Maywood, Illinois, Hampton organized a student section of the NAACP in 1967. He served on the school's interracial cross-section committee, which was a club that helped white students confront some of their own racist beliefs. So it was a good start to having that cross uh, racial dialogue that we all really need to pay attention to, even now in 2022. He also protested the unjust arrest of Eugene Moore, a classmate who would later become the area's first black state representative. Fred also helped organize a student boycott of his high school, Proviso East High, when black girls were excluded from the homecoming queen's retinue. When the black students protested, white students responded violently, beating black students with bats and blackjacks. Hampton quickly organized groups of black students to fight back. And in response to this widespread chaos, this widespread interracial violence, Maywood's police imposed martial law and set up checkpoints in the city's black neighborhoods. Of course, only the black areas of town had the checkpoints, right? Go figure. Hampton personally brought in legal represent, uh, representatives from the national chapter of the NAACP, and then he led another boycott of his high school, demanding that the martial law situation, the martial law environment be retracted. After graduating with honors, Hampton enrolled in a pre-law program at Trenton College, which was a public community college near his home. And this was at this time that he met Mr. Bobby Rush, okay? Him and Bobby would later go on and build the Black Panther Party in Chicago, all right? Bobby Rush was more of a scholarly type of activist than a fiery, charismatic speaker. Rush was a sharp thinker and a good administrator, but he was not a public speaker. He grew up in the Chicago Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, and by 1968, Bobby Rush was co-directing the small chapter of SNCC in Chicago. Rush had a good relationship with Stokely Carmichael. If you guys have heard some of my previous podcasts, you've heard the name Stokely Carmichael. He is a black power, black liberation icon. He's a legend in the movement. So, as tensions be began to boil over between Carmichael and some other SNCC leaders in the spring of 68, because there's a lot of tension, 
right? Because after after Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated, there was tension within the the civil rights movements of the time, right? The leaders didn't know what direction to go in. And Stokely was very, very outspoken in his beliefs. He was very outspoken in the tactics that needed to be done. But there are some leaders who were still very reserved. They believe in the old school, you know, nonviolent singing and marching. The Stokely was a little bit more radical than that, and he wanted to try new type of strategies, and he, he got some pushback from within the organization. So once these tensions began to boil over, Stokely, he encouraged Bobby Rush to start up a chapter of the Black Panther Party in Chicago. According to Bobby, quote, the problem with SNCC was that it didn't have any specific activities. Bobby Rush soon met Donald Cox, David Hilliard, and Bobby Seale, and these meetings left a deep impression on him. After meeting the Black Panther Party leadership, Rush was intent. He was focused on starting a Chicago chapter of the party. But he couldn't do it alone. Rush needed partners. When he, when he saw Fred Hampton speak at a black leadership conference at the headquarters of the Chicago gang, the Black Peace Donation, that's when he knew for sure that Fred Hampton was the missing piece of the puzzle, the key to the Panthers' success in Chicago. So what did he do? Rush recruited Fred to join the party. Rush, Hampton, and Bobby Brown, Rush's SNCC co-director, formed the Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party. Let's talk about the environment of Chicago in the 1960s, right? I call it gangland, and I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of other people still call it that because Chicago is one of the most active cities when it comes to gangbanging, when it comes to criminal activity, when it comes to violence, and nothing changed, right? This is the 60s, and we're still dealing with it in 2022. So, gangs have ruled Chicago for its entire history. Al Capone, known as Scarface, made Chicago a gangster's paradise, and his legacy continued into the 1960s. In the late 1960s, gangs were an important political force in black neighborhoods. The most powerful and influential gang at the time was the Blackstone Rangers. From their founding in the early part of the decade, the Blackstone Rangers focused on community building alongside their illegal activities, which included drug trafficking, racketeering, and extortion. As a result of their community presence, they almost ran like a low-key, semi-autonomous local neighborhood government on the south side of Chicago. And they did this by protecting their residents from other gangs and the police and also providing community services. By the late 1960s, the Rangers had absorbed most of the smaller gangs and incorporated them into what was known as the Peacestone Nation, which had over 3,500 dedicated members. Some estimates range as far as 8,000 dedicated hardcore members. The nation organized community activities like a play that was coordinated by singer, songwriter, and jazz pianist Oscar Brown Jr. They also developed 
loose relationships with the black liberation and the black power movements of the time. While all this was taking place, there were massive flood, massive floods of federal funds that, would po that was pouring into impoverished communities, $950,000 in total. And this came from the Office of Economic Opportunity. And these funds were earmarked for impoverished youth in the urban centers. What the Rangers did, the Rangers and their, and their main rivals, the Gangster Disciples, they used the grant money to help build community centers, run job training programs for unemployed youth, and they also built restaurants in the community. So remember, back then, the gangs weren't just doing drive-bys, robbing innocent people. They were actually in the community. And that's kind of why you always hear the old timers, the OGs, talking about how times have changed, how the gangs aren't the same anymore, there's no leadership anymore, there's no structure. It's because gangs like the, like the Black Peacestone Nation and the Gangster Disciples, when they were formed, they had OGs, they had structure, they had solid, strong leadership that kind of helped the gangs stay on course, right? Even though they're still doing illegal activities, they were community focused. They weren't there to destroy their own community, they were there more to protect their community, right? And that's not to say that they didn't do bad things. But in the 60s, African-Americans, they knew what they were up against. The community was much more united, especially on the south side of Chicago. I can't speak about the other sides of Chicago, but I know the south side, the Black Peace Nation and the Gangster disciple, uh, Disciples really ruled that area, and uh, they held court in that area. In 1968, after having built a strong Panther base in the city, Hampton entered into negotiations with Jeff Fort, the leader of the Rangers, about possibly merging the Panthers and the Rangers into one unified organization. The merger would help both. The merger could boost the Panthers' membership and street presence. It also attracted the attention of local law enforcement and the FBI. So it had some positives, right? It would help the Panthers get more members. It would help legitimize the Rangers. And it would also help give the Panthers more of an edgy street presence where they can maybe have access to things, maybe have access to certain parts of the community that didn't trust them, right? Um, so yeah, it could work out for everyone, but you know what that means. That means it's bringing heat, right? We got two groups that are a threat to local law enforcement getting together and talking about an alliance. The FBI's ears perked up and they were paying attention. The FBI was on full alert and they viewed the potential merger as a clear political threat. They aimed to start a conflict between the two groups to sabotage the partnership before it could grow wings. On the FBI's radar, the Chicago field office suggested in a December 16th memo that spreading false rumors about the Black Panther leadership. They wanted to spread rumors about the leadership talking badly about Jeff Fort. Quote, these might result in Fort having active steps taken to exact some form of retribution toward the leadership of the Black Panther Party. Right? So the FBI field office, in the memo, they were, they were writing, they were suggesting that they start rumors, that they start sabotaging the relationship, running, running <laughs> intelligence operations 
propaganda operations, right? To try to uh, throw the potential merger off course, right? Hampton and his small entourage, they went to Rangers headquarters on December 18th at 10.30 p.m. to discuss the merger. Fred Hampton suggested to Fort that by joining forces, they could take over all other Chicago street gangs. According to an FBI informant, Hampton told Fort that, quote, they couldn't let the man keep the two groups apart, end quote. Fort was interested in an alliance, but he wanted the Panthers to join the Rangers, not the other way around, right? So Fort was not about to give up his power. He thought the Panthers should become Rangers. He didn't think the Rangers should become Panthers, right? Because that would eliminate his name, and he didn't want that to happen. Fort flexed his muscles, putting on a show of strength. Quote, Fort gave orders via, via walkie-talkie, whereupon two men marched through the door, carrying pump shotguns. Another order, and two men appeared, carrying sawed-off carbines, then eight more each carrying a 45 caliber machine gun, clip tight, operated from the shoulder or hip. Then others came with over and under tight weapons. After this procession, Fort had all rangers present approximately, uh, present approximately 100, display their sidearms, and about half had 45 caliber revolvers. All above weapons appeared to be new, quote, end quote. So Fort was showing Hampton, look, we got the manpower, and we got the guns. What do you have? Fort told Hampton he supported the Panthers, but that the Rangers were not supposed to be considered members of the party. And he gave Hampton a new 45 caliber machine gun, urging him to go ahead and try it out, right? <laughs> so he was trying to be like, look, Fred, like, it's cool and all with your revolutionary talk and all that good stuff, but uh, we're running the streets, and we're about that action. So... We're not joining you. You're going to join us. We're the ones with the power here, right? Over the next few weeks, discussions broke down. And this is when the Chicago field office of the FBI suggested the time was right to provoke the Rangers to take violent action. Can you believe? So they were trying to sabotage anything that revolutionary groups that wanted to, to see change occur anytime they tried to organize, anytime they tried to do what was right with the community, there would be someone standing in their way. And usually it was the FBI, believe it or not. It's hard to believe you think of them as good guys, you think of them as doing the right thing, but they didn't. All right, so what the FBI did was they sent Jeff Fort a fake letter. It was, it was a phony, a phony letter it was written by some nerd agent in the FBI. This is what it said. Brother Jeff, I've spent some time with some Panther friends on the west side lately, and I know what's been going on. The brothers that run the Panthers blame you for blocking their thing, and they're supposed to be a hit out for you. I'm not a Panther or a Ranger, just black. From what I see, these Panthers are out for themselves, not black people. I think you ought to know what they're up to. I know what I'd do if I were to you. You might hear from me again. Signed, a black brother you don't know. <laughs> that's like obviously the police. <laughs> like that's the most obvious police letter I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> that's the worst. Who wrote that letter? Definitely wasn't a black dude who wrote that letter. That's for sure. All right, so the FBI 
suggested sending the letter to Fort, not Hampton, because Fort was more likely to respond with violence. So, <laughs> hey, silly. All right, quote, it is believed the above may intensify the degree of animosity between the two groups and occasion Fort to take retaliatory action, which could disrupt the Black Panther Party or lead to reprisals against his leadership. Consideration has been given to a similar letter to the party alleging a ranger plot against the Black Panther Party leadership. However, it is not felt this would be productive principally because the party at present is not believed as violent, violence prone as the rangers to whom violent type activity, shooting and the like is second nature. <laughs> so that is a word for word FBI internal document admitting that they wanted to literally provoke violence against the Black Panther Party leadership, trying to trick the Rangers, the Blackstone Rangers, into killing or seriously hurting the Black Panther Party leadership. The plot might have prevented a partnership between the two groups, but Fort and Hampton quickly determined that the FBI was trying to trick them. No one responded to the letter. They did not take the bait. So the FBI's rat mole plan failed, right? They snipped out a rat. They smelled a rat. Didn't sound right. They didn't act on it, right? The ice cream conviction. This is an interesting uh, part of the story right here. In early 1969, Fred Hampton started the first Panther free food distribution program in the city. Get this, though. Hampton, <laughs> viewing himself as a modern-day Robin Hood, acquired, in quotes, in quotations, an ice cream truck in Maywood, passing out more than 400 ice cream bars worth a total of $7,100 to neighborhood kids. The Maywood Police Department apparently did not appreciate Hampton's community efforts and arrested him on charges of robbery and assault. In the weeks following the arrest, the chapter organized their first official program. <laughs> Not an acquisition. It's an actual official program this time. A free breakfast for children program, which opened on April 1st, 1969. Two weeks later, the Panthers had fed more than 1,100 grade school kids, gaining new support from the community. During his, must, his much publicized trial that April, Hampton asked for support for the Panthers and also plugged his new free food initiative. On April 9th, 1969, Hampton was convicted of robbery and assault. Maywood Police Chief Kellogg tried to convince the court to not release him on bail. But thanks to his excellent attorney, Mr. Gene Williams, Hampton got out on $2,000 bail. Williams actually planned to appeal the conviction on grounds that the newspaper articles written at the time about the Panthers during the trial, so the news was covering it, writing articles, there are all type of news stories. He believed that that had influenced the jury and the jury's decision. After the trial, Hampton called the Panthers' first press conference, during which he challenged the legitimacy of the state and called on the people to help mobilize support for the Panthers' struggle against state repression. Hampton argued that was in fact the party, not the government, 
that had the people's best interest at heart. Quote, our case should be taken to the people, and the people will not tolerate any oppressive system or force that attempts to jail the very people who feed their hungry children, end quote. Hampton then announced that the Chicago branch intended to start up a community patrol of police, open liberation schools throughout the city, and set up free health care clinics. Quote, we're being harassed constantly by the pigs, and they're arresting us as fast as they can on any type of charge, such as traffic violations, smoking on buses, carrying concealed weapons, just anything, end quote. Despite this opposition by the power structure, Hampton remained committed to the cause, quote, but no matter how many of us they try to lock up, force underground, or even kill the vanguard of the People's Revolution, the Black Panther Party will still go on. We are servants of the people, and any people who launch attacks against the servants of the people are enemies of the people. On Monday, May 26, with Illinois State, uh, State Attorney Edward Haranen, yeah, something like that, who cares what his name is, publicly pressuring the judge, Fred Hampton was sentenced to two to five years in prison for robbery and assault. Black leadership of the Black Liberation Alliance, the Black Panther Party, and the Congress for Racial Equality condemned the sentence, noting that Hampton's free breakfast program Fred fed over 3,000 kids across Chicago and that this was a threat to Mayor Daley and his political establishment. Mr. Robert L. Lucas, the natural director of the Black Liberation Alliance, observed, quote, This type of program poses a devastating threat to the Daley political machine and the black lackeys who front for him in the city's wards, end quote. As of late March, 1969, the Chicago Black Panther Party was still small and didn't generate much local influence or national attention. Rush and Hampton teamed up in June of 1968 to form the Black Panther Party in Chicago, but the Black Panther National Office did not officially recognize the chapter until October of 1968. And the first Chicago office was not opened until November 1st, 1968. So, what did that mean? That means there was literally no coverage of the Chicago Panther Party, even in the own Black Panther newspaper, until May of 1969. But, there's a silver lining. As the state cracked down more and more on the Chicago Panthers, their membership grew, and they started generating attention from the national office local black residents, and the new left allies. On April 9th, 1969, the same day Fred Hampton was convicted, the Black Panthers joined with the Students for a Democratic Society to organize a rally in downtown Chicago. Speaking to more than 500 people, the Panthers proclaimed their position as the, quote, the vanguard of the revolutionary struggle today. Bobby Seale and Hampton both spoke of plans for a huge organizing drive in Chicago that summer in preparation for SEAL's trial in September. Federal efforts to repress the Chicago Panther Party continued. In early April, undercover, undercover police approached Panthers and offered to sell them illegal submachine guns. 
on April 11th in what the New Left newspaper, The Guardian, called, quote, a clear case of provocation and entrapment, 79 federal agents and Chicago police arrested three Panthers, Merrill, Harver, Merrill Harvey, Michael White, and Field Secretary Nathaniel Jr. for the attempted purchase of automatic weapons. So they set up the deal, and when the Panthers said no, they arrested them and charged them with the attempt to buy automatic weapons. It makes no sense. The court sets bail, set bail ranging from 65000 to 75000 for each of the three defendants. This same court in January released two white men on only a $4,000 bail for selling similar weapons, legally a much more serious offense. By the end of May, while advancing their community programs and alliances with political organizations, and in the face of overt straight repression, the Panthers were slowly building a strong, vibrant organization in Chicago. That's all we got for now. It's a short episode. We're coming out tomorrow with another one. I figured I would shorten it up a little bit, guys. This is the beginning of Fred Hampton's legacy. We already see what he's starting to do. He's uniting people from the left. He's uniting the local black residents. He's even bringing gangs together that usually fight each other. So this is becoming a threat. As you can see, as the story went on, right, you notice how the FBI, you know, first the local police started started getting involved. Then all of a sudden they got the attention of the FBI chapter in Chicago. So that's no good. Once you're on their radar, once they target you, they're going to come after you. On the next episode tomorrow, we're going to talk about the deliberate, systematic assassination and jailing of the Black Panther Party leadership in Chicago. God bless you guys. I hope you guys have a great evening. There's a lot more work to do, but we're getting after it. Black History Month is every single day. Tomorrow's the last official day, but we're going to keep celebrating. We're going to keep talking about my heroes, American heroes, black culture, and black achievement. Have a great night. Ape out. Oh, yeah. Funky. All right, so stay positive. Put God and your family first. Get after it. Don't let anyone tell you you can't do something. All right? If you would have told me that what? If you would have told me three years ago that I would have a podcast and people would actually be listening to me, I would tell you to shut the F up and go, go away somewhere. But, hey, God is good. Keep believing, y'all. Keep the faith. God bless Ukraine. Pray for them. Amen.